When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. On the afternoon of Monday, August the 15th, Elvis Presley woke at 4pm and spent the evening playing with his daughter, Lisa Marie, and watching TV. Later that night, he would leave Graceland at 11pm to visit his dentist, and would return home a couple of hours later at 12.30am. Before going to sleep, around 6am, Elvis would take a handful of painkillers prescribed by his doctor. It included a lethal cocktail mix of sleeping pills and an assortment of other depressants. Later that morning, at 9.30am, still unable to sleep, Elvis would take several more pills and he would head to the bathroom carrying Frank Adams' book The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus. Just a few hours later, Ginger Alden would discover Elvis unconscious on the bathroom floor in a pool of vomit. Sadly, at 3.30pm, Elvis Presley would be pronounced dead at the age of 42 at Baptist Medical Centre in Memphis. Join us on a supernatural journey as we take you on a tour of the King of Rock and Roll's music history. We tell the story of Elvis's final days in Memphis, explore the mystical facts, and investigate his backstage exit to the afterlife. This is Death by Misadventure. Elvis Aaron Presley was born to Vernon and Gladys Presley in a two-room house in Mississippi on January 8, 1935, under the zodiac sign of Capricorn. His twin brother, Jesse, was stillborn, leaving Elvis to grow up as an only child. Raised by loving, working-class parents, Elvis's family had little money, and they moved from place to place frequently. His father, Vernon, worked a series of odd jobs, and in 1938 was sentenced to three years in prison for forging a $4 check and spent less than a year behind bars. Elvis was devoted to his parents, especially his mother Gladys, and was raised to have a strong faith in God. He attended the First Assembly of God Church with his parents, where gospel music became an important influence for him, and he was baptized when he was nine years old. His roots deep in the Pentecostal faith, speaking in tongues was not uncommon. Elvis loved attending church and would often run down the aisle during service so that he could stand directly in front of the choir, singing along and imitating their movements. Elvis's highly protective mother, Gladys, who never let him out of her sight, decided to buy him something special for his 11th birthday. 
She took him to the hardware store and bought a gift that would change the course of rock and roll history, a $6.95 guitar. Afterward, Elvis received no formal music training, but he had an innate natural talent to sing and play the guitar. The Presleys moved to Memphis in 1948, when Elvis turned 13. As a teenager, he was uninterested in school and was considered an outsider. Instead, he completely focused on playing guitar and listening to a huge variety of records, ranging from country, bluegrass, blues, and gospel to mainstream pop and even opera. He also started to sport a distinctive look with sideburns and styled hair. This image would later become an Elvis trademark. Elvis had his first taste of musical success a few years later when he won a talent show at his high school in Memphis. He graduated in 1953, becoming the first member of his immediate family to earn a high school diploma. After graduation, he worked at a machinist shop and drove a truck before launching his music career. In August 1953, Elvis went to visit Sun Records. He wanted to pay for a few minutes of studio time to record a two-sided disc, My Happiness, and That's When Your Heartaches Begin. It was a gift for his mother, but also he hoped he would get noticed and offered a record deal. However, it didn't come to anything. Not long after, he failed an audition for a local vocal quartet, the Songfellows. He told his father, they said I couldn't sing. In January 1954, Presley cut another record at Sun. I'll never stand in your way, and it wouldn't be the same without you. But again, nothing came of it. A few months later in April, his friend Ronnie Smith, after playing a few local gigs with him, suggested he contact Eddie Bond, leader of Smith's professional band, which had an opening for a vocalist. Bond rejected him after a tryout, advising Elvis to stick to truck driving because you're never going to make it as a singer. However, later on in the year, the Sun boss Sam Phillips invited Elvis to come in for another recording session. Initially, it was unpromising, but towards the end of the allotted time, Elvis took out his guitar and launched into a 1946 blues number, That's All Right. Phillips quickly began taping. This was exactly the sound he had been looking for. He believed that Elvis had a unique voice and talent that teens would love. Three days later, popular Memphis DJ Dewey Phillips played That's All Right on his Red, Hot, and Blues show. Listeners began phoning in, eager to find out who the singer was. The song was so popular, they played the record repeatedly for the remainder of the show, and even interviewed Elvis on air. Afterward, Sam Phillip had Elvis record a bluegrass number, Blue Moon of Kentucky, again in a distinctive style and employing a jury-rigged echo effect that he dubbed Slapback. A single was pressed with That's All Right on the A-side and Blue Moon of Kentucky on the reverse. Elvis would play his first gig on July 17th at the Bon Air Club, sporting his child-sized guitar. At the end of the month, he appeared with his band at the Overton Park Shell, with Slim Whitman headlining. A combination of his strong response to rhythm and nervousness at playing before a large crowd led Elvis to shake his legs as he performed. His wide-cut pants emphasized his movements, 
causing young women in the audience to start screaming. Next, Elvis would make his first TV appearance on Louisiana Hayride in November 1954. By early 1955, Presley's regular Hayride appearances, constant touring, and well-received second releases made him a regional star from Tennessee to West Texas. Elvis's newfound fame captured the attention of Colonel Tom Parker, who was considered the best promoter in the music business. Having successfully managed top country star Eddie Arnold, Parker was working with the new number one country singer, Hank Snow, and booked Elvis on Snow's February tour. Elvis's sound would become known as Rockabilly and would be billed as the king of Western bop, the hillbilly cat, and the Memphis Flash. Soon, several record companies were interested in giving Elvis a record deal. After three major labels made offers of up to $25,000, Colonel Parker struck a deal with RCA Records to acquire Elvis's son contract for a sum of $40,000. However, Elvis at 20 was still a minor, so his father signed the record contract for him. Under Colonel Parker's guidance, Elvis shot to stardom. His first single for RCA, Heartbreak Hotel, released in 1956, became his first number one hit song and sold more than one million copies. His debut album, Elvis Presley, topped Billboard's pop album chart, and he even made his first big screen debut in Love Me Tender. By early summer, Colonel Parker cut a deal for Elvis to make three appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show for a fee of $50,000. Although Sullivan previously had said he wouldn't book the singer on his family-oriented TV variety show, he relented after competitor Steve Allen featured Elvis on his show in July 1956 and beat Sullivan in the ratings. When Elvis appeared on his show on September 9, 1956, 60 million people, more than 80% of the TV-viewing audience, tuned in. After Elvis made his second Sullivan appearance in October, crowds in Nashville and St. Louis were outraged by his sexy performance and protested that rock and roll music would corrupt America's teens. After every new TV appearance, the fans' response at Elvis's live shows became increasingly fevered. He would start the show with You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, and the fans would start screaming. By the end of each show, he would nearly cause a riot every single time. But Elvis's newfound fame was a double-edged sword, and he was not accustomed to the intense energy focused on him by his new fan following. When he came off stage, the singer would sometimes faint or his nose would bleed after a show because his body was so overwhelmed by the enthusiastic reception. As his career took off, Elvis still remained close with his mother, calling her every night. They were so close that they even had a psychic connection, knowing what was going on with the other without even communicating. One time, Elvis called his mother after his tour bus caught fire. She immediately picked up the phone asking what happened. When he asked her what she meant, she said, The fire. I dreamed of you in a fire. Elvis's year would end with a front-page story in the Wall Street Journal, reporting that his concert merchandise brought in over $22 million on top of his record sales and Billboard's declaration that he had placed more songs in the top 100 than any other artist. 
In his first full year at RCA, one of the music industry's largest record labels, Elvis had accounted for over 50% of the music sales. Elvis, who was now flush with cash, would shell out $102,000 to buy his first house, Graceland, a Memphis mansion on nearly 14 acres. The stately home was built in 1939 by Dr. Thomas Moore and his wife Ruth on land that was once part of a 500-acre farm dubbed Graceland in honor of the original owner's daughter. He bought the estate in hopes it would make his mom happy. To Elvis, Graceland was the culmination of his dreams, a public showcase of just how far he'd come and how blessed his life was. But unfortunately for his mom, Gladys, it became a place of illness, isolation, and depression. Elvis would make his final appearance on Ed Sullivan in January 1957, and this time network censors demanded he be filmed from the waist up. Two days later, fate would step in, and the Memphis Draft Board announced that Elvis would be classified 1A and would probably be drafted sometime that year. On March 24, 1958, Elvis was drafted into the U.S. military, but received a short deferment so he could wrap up production on his film, King Creole. However, when Elvis finally left for the Army, life would take a deadly emotional turn for his mother, Gladys. When she learned her son would be posted to Germany, she wasn't well enough to travel, and she feared he might be hurt in the war. By this point, her health was deteriorating, and Elvis tried his best to keep his mother comfortable. When he was posted in Texas for Army training, he rented a home for his family nearby so they could visit him. But by August 1958, Gladys was back in Memphis in the hospital and near death. Elvis would be granted emergency leave to visit his mom one last time and say goodbye. On August 14, 1958, Gladys would pass away at age 46 of acute hepatitis and severe liver damage. Devastated by the loss of his mother, Elvis was shipped out for an assignment to the 3rd Armored Division in Friedberg, West Germany, where he served as a Jeep driver. While in Germany, he lived off base with his father and grandmother, it was also during this time Elvis would meet 14-year-old Priscilla Boyu, whose father was an officer in the U.S. Air Force and was hanging around the Eagle Club when she was spotted by Curry Grant, the club's assistant manager. She wanted to meet Elvis, and Curry was happy to set that up. After meeting the beautiful teenager, Elvis invited her to a party, but her parents initially said no. Elvis, who was infatuated with Priscilla, was determined to win her parents over. So he showed up at their home in full uniform to ask if he could escort her to the party. Elvis arrived decked out in white gloves, hat, everything, and wanted to impress her parents. He immediately won Priscilla's parents over and they talked for an hour and a half. Despite the age difference, the two had an undeniable connection and they both were smitten. Elvis, born under the zodiac sign of Capricorn, loved the idea of being her knight in shining armor and protector. Priscilla, a Gemini, and although young, she was flirty and fun to be with. They both had son trying Neptune, and they shared a romantic view of life and of each other. 
He was, of course, her idol, but there were dark karmic aspects to their relationship as well. Elvis had a more traditional view of romantic relationships, and Priscilla had a fiery aspect to her personality and an independent streak. This difficult aspect would later lead to clashes between the two, but for now, they were in love. Elvis was discharged from the military and returned home in 1960, but he kept in contact by phone with Priscilla, and three years later, while still in high school, she moved to Graceland. For Priscilla, following Elvis's footsteps was easy in the beginning, but her new life with her famous sweetheart wasn't always so blissful. Life was lonely for the young teenager, and his manager, Colonel Parker, didn't really want Elvis to have a steady girlfriend. He wanted his fans to think he was still available, and it hurt and upset Priscilla. But after seven years of courtship, Elvis proposed to Priscilla right before she turned 21. The couple married on May 1, 1967, surrounded by friends and family, and the wedding took place at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas, making it the wedding event of the year. On the outside, they appeared to be a fairy tale couple, about to embark on their happily ever after. However, behind closed doors, Priscilla was often left alone, while Elvis kept company with other women. Priscilla quickly became pregnant, and on February 1, 1968, the couple welcomed their only daughter, Lisa Marie, an Aquarius. Priscilla would later tell family how Elvis was a nervous wreck when she went into labor and even drove them to the wrong hospital. Elvis was an amazing father, and he absolutely adored his little girl. A typical Capricorn father, stern but fair and always supportive. She was the apple of his eye, and he felt blessed to be her dad. However, Priscilla was another story, and the king continued to struggle to stay committed to his marriage and his wife. From 1967 to 1973, Priscilla, desperate to keep her husband's affection, went through great lengths to maintain what she called a mystique in the marriage. She would never let Elvis see her without makeup or while she was getting ready. She even tried to turn a blind eye to his many affairs. Although Elvis was the love of her life, after six years of marriage, she became restless and tired of living his rock and roll lifestyle. At the age of 27, she decided to split from Elvis for this very reason. She was restless and wanted to find out what the world had to offer. The couple separated on February 23, 1972, and filed for legal separation on July 26. Despite the pending divorce, the two decided to remain good friends for the sake of their daughter, Lisa Marie. Six months after Priscilla left, Elvis began dating beauty queen Linda Thompson, who was a virgin just like Priscilla when they met. Linda Thompson, also a Gemini, shared Elvis's religious beliefs and passion for gospel music. She had a vibrant personality and knew how to lift his spirits when he was feeling blue. Elvis, who hated being alone, had Linda move into Graceland in August 1972, even before his divorce was final. Linda remained his loyal girlfriend for over four and a half years. Eventually, the relationship fell apart, just like his marriage to Priscilla, due to Elvis's constant drug use and infidelities. Linda would later state in an interview, there were times when he was very, very difficult. 
There was a lot of heartache, and he exhibited a lot of self-destructive behavior, which was very difficult for me, you know, watching someone I loved so much destroy himself. In November 1976, Linda left Elvis, and one month later he began dating Ginger Alden, a stunning actress and model who looked very similar to Priscilla. Together, they had an incredible sexual chemistry with Venus conjunct Mars and Libra, and appeared to be emotionally compatible. However, their romance would be short-lived, when several months later, Elvis's life would take a deadly turn. Elvis' health issues worsened as he became depressed after divorcing Priscilla in 1973. Still, his ex-wife continued to be a big part of his life, and the two stayed friendly even after the divorce. Whenever Elvis was having a bad day or was down, Priscilla would always take his calls, and she would immediately lift his spirits every time they spoke. By early 1977, Elvis had become a virtual recluse at Graceland, and would take solace in the spiritual books given to him by his good friend, Larry Geller. He was on a quest to find answers to the meaning of life and was haunted by the fact that his surviving twin, Jesse, was stillborn. One day, he opened up to Larry and shared a dream he had about his brother. He said, You won't believe the dream I just had. Man, it was so real. I can't remember dreaming about my brother Jesse since I was a little kid. But there we were together, on stage. It seemed like thousands of people were in the audience, and they were screaming at us. It was wild. We were dressed alike, wearing identical white jumpsuits, and we were both playing matching guitars slung around our shoulders. There were two blue spotlights, one shining on him, one on me. And I kept looking at him, and man, he was the spitting image of me. I'll tell you something else, he had a way better voice than me. Elvis was a profoundly religious man, always searching for answers, while remaining curious about other mystical realms. He even believed strongly in numerology and the science of numbers. Elvis had the life path number nine vibration, and he was a natural light worker who symbolizes faith and spiritual enlightenment. He was someone who was kind and understanding, and represented a universal love of humanity and patience. His friend and spiritual advisor, Larry Geller, would say, From the moment we first met, I knew Elvis had a spiritual quality. I had never seen so much power in one person. The effect he had on people was tremendous. He could silence an entire room full of people just by walking in. It wasn't just his fame that caused that. It was his aura of power. However, later in his life, when Elvis began his fall from grace, he no longer had real control over his life or circumstances. The singer was surrounded by those who claimed to love him, but would use him for money and tried to drain him of his power. These circumstances would soon play a deadly role in the tragic days that laid ahead for a singer that August. A couple of weeks before his tour, Elvis would call his stepmother, sobbing, and would tell her, I'm in terrible pain. 
It was a cry for help. Dee Presley, who was married to his father, Vernon, from 1960, at the height of Elvis's stardom, until 1974 when they divorced, had remained close to the king and was genuinely concerned. She asked him what was wrong, and he wanted to know why she didn't visit Graceland anymore. He was sad and lonely, and he made her promise he would see her on his next tour. After their troubling conversation, Dee warned her ex-husband Vernon that she felt something terrible was going to happen to one of her boys, or Elvis. She had an intense feeling that tragedy was looming just around the corner, and she was right. On the afternoon of Monday, August 15th, Elvis woke at 4 p.m. and spent the evening playing with his daughter, Lisa Marie, and watching TV. Later that evening, he would leave Graceland around 11 p.m. to visit his dentist. He would later return to Graceland in the early morning hours of August 16th, and he would take care of last-minute tour details. He was scheduled to fly to Portland, Maine that night and do a show there on the 17th. At 2.30 a.m., Elvis called his doctor to ask for painkillers, supposedly for the tooth pain. Ricky Stanley, Elvis's stepbrother, would pick up the pills from an all-night pharmacy at Baptist Memorial Hospital and give them to the singer to take. Elvis would retire to his master suite at Graceland around 7 a.m. to rest for his upcoming flight and would take another pack of pills before going to sleep. However, around 8 a.m., still unable to sleep, Elvis had his aunt, Delta Mae Biggs, bring him a third packet of pills to take. A couple of hours later, Elvis would head to the bathroom carrying the book, Frank Adams' The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus. While on his way, Ginger would warn him, don't fall asleep in there. Okay, I won't, would be Elvis's last words. Ginger would later wake up at 1.30 in the afternoon, but Elvis wasn't in bed. She called her mother, who asked how Elvis was, but Ginger had no idea. She then got dressed and walked over to Elvis's bathroom door to check on him. She knocked softly and called out Elvis's name. She got no answer, so she pushed open the door and discovered Elvis lying on the floor in his gold pajama bottoms around the bottom of his feet, his face buried in a pool of vomit on the thick shack carpet. In shock, she called downstairs asking for help, thinking he had fallen over and hit his head. Alstrada would call the paramedics, and Elvis was then rushed to the Baptist Memorial Hospital. After attempts to revive him failed, Elvis, the king of rock and roll, would be pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. on August 16th, 1977. After Elvis died, Priscilla found out the heartbreaking news from his road manager, she was with her sister at an appointment when her father called, stating Joe was desperately trying to get a hold of her. Immediately, she had thought something had happened to Lisa Marie, who was scheduled to come home that day to get ready for school. 
She ran every red light to get home as soon as possible, and when she pulled into her driveway, she could hear the telephone ringing and ran to answer it. After Joe gave her the devastating news, she collapsed, trying to contemplate how and why Elvis was dead and how she and her daughter Lisa Marie would carry on without him. She felt like she had lost everything. Elvis was her mentor, her confidant, and now he was gone. A few hours later, Priscilla would board a private jet to Memphis to make funeral plans for her daughter's father and the man she loved so much. Elvis was embalmed at the Memphis funeral home and returned to Graceland on August 17, 1977, where a public viewing of the casket, ordered by Elvis's father Vernon, was set up in the foyer. Thousands of fans converged on Memphis in the days following his death, so many that President Carter ordered 300 National Guard troops to the area to maintain order. All the city buildings in Memphis immediately lowered their flags to half-staff. Elvis's funeral was held on August 18th, and it was a small memorial service attended by his family and friends, including co-star Anne Margaret, James Brown, and actor George Hamilton. The service was held in Graceland's living room, and it lasted for two hours. Wooddale Church of Christ pastor C.W. Bradley led the sermon. Other Elvis tour members and bandmates J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, the Statesmans, and Kathy Westmoreland performed some of Elvis's favorite hymns, including Heavenly Father. Elvis was buried wearing a white suit and blue shirt, and the final burial service began with a long procession down the street that bore his name. A white hearse holding his casket and 17 white limousines drove to Forest Hill Cemetery. An estimated 80,000 people lined the streets to wave goodbye, and paid their final respects to the singer they loved so much. A small service was then held in the mausoleum, followed by loving words from family and friends. Elvis's father, Vernon, was the last to pay his respects, kissing the coffin and repeating, Daddy will be with you soon. Later that day, Elvis's body was laid to rest next to his dear mother, Gladys. In late August of the same year, a thief attempted to steal the body of Elvis. As a result, both Elvis and his mother's remains were relocated to the Meditation Garden at Graceland on October 2, 1977. Elvis Presley's death profoundly affected the music industry and broke the hearts of millions of fans around the world. In the days following his funeral, a small group of skeptics claimed that Elvis might not have died after all, fueling many conspiracy theories and the belief that perhaps he may have faked his own death. Over the last 42 years, many haunting tales of Elvis have been told including many people insisting they've spotted Elvis out and about. In 1989, three Elvis enthusiasts would create the Elvis Sighting Society to monitor these apparent incidents. Some people even claimed he appeared as an extra in the 1990 blockbuster Home Alone. One of the biggest theories on why Elvis may have faked his own death was to escape the Mafia. 
Gail Brewer Giorgio, the author of the 1988 best-selling book, Is Alvis Alive?, recalled in an interview with Time magazine how she poured through thousands of FBI documents to come to the conclusion that Elvis was an American hero who had gone into the witness protection program. Besides believed sightings, skeptics also point to what they insist are slip-ups from Elvis's family in media interviews and an apparent name misspelling on the king's tombstone as proof of a cover-up. However, we think that many of the Presley sightings is either wishful thinking on the fans' part, perhaps an Elvis impersonator, considering Google claims there are over 85,000 around the world, or perhaps there is an even more compelling mystical explanation. Dr. Raymond Moody, a philosopher, psychologist, and best-selling author of the book, Life After Life, is a leading expert on the afterlife and researcher on near-death experiences. In an interview with Jeffrey Mishlove, Dr. Moody shared his personal conclusions about his research into near-death experiences, and after interviewing over a thousand people who had had these amazing experiences— he has no doubt that there is a life after death. In July 1989, Dr. Moody released a book titled Elvis After Life. In the book, he explores Elvis's cult-like following and the reasons for fans' alleged premonition dreams of his death and psychic experiences that followed it. Some of the dreams cited in his book concern an imaginary last concert of Elvis in which he announces his death or in which the dreamer saw him in his coffin. Fans tell of apparitions. Among those quoted are a clinical psychologist, a farmer, a truck driver, and even a policeman. Such experiences, suggests Dr. Moody, often reflect an unconscious emotional need or unresolved conflict and may have a religious impact on the dreamer. Some of these stories are fantastic like the woman who is convinced her son is Elvis Presley reincarnated, while others, there's an eerie ring of truth, like the no-nonsense cop who found his son after Elvis appeared to him in a dream. Other amazing stories in the book include there's an Elvis jacket that moves, his records that melt, and even memorabilia that fall to the floor. Dr. Moody writes about people who had premonitions that Elvis would die just hours before his death. In a 1987 interview with McCall Magazine, Dr. Moody tells the incredible story of a Georgia cop, Harold Welch, and how the spirit of Elvis helped him find his runaway son. The cop believed his son had ran away to Los Angeles. And just before he left to find him, Welch had a dream where Elvis tells him his son is in a rooming house, then shows him exactly where it is in Los Angeles. There was a short street with a drugstore on the corner and a short-order diner across from it. Elvis kept trying to point out things to me so I would recognize them. Welch tells Dr. Moody about the dream. Welch left for Los Angeles and began searching the streets in an area populated by runaways. 
On March 9th, he was driving down a street and noticed a drugstore and hamburger stand across from it, exactly where Elvis had pointed out in his dream. Welch walked up to the three old houses that were also in his dream and knocked on the door. Much to his surprise, the old woman who answered told him his son was there. Once reunited, Welch says his son, a big Elvis fan, told him he had twice dreamed that Elvis told him his father would come find him and take him home. Even Dr. Moody was baffled by Welch's story, stating, His story was very impressive to me. He just wasn't the kind of guy who would have had an experience like that if it wasn't true. Dr. Moody in his interview says most of the psychic tales, particularly those of Elvis' visions, are similar to those experienced by many people who have lost a loved one. We would like to think of Elvis as an angel, watching over us and helping fans in their time of need. For Elvis's daughter, Lisa Marie, it has not been an easy road since her father passed away. In a recent Closer Weekly interview, Lisa conveyed the fact that her childhood was actually a pretty lonely one. She would often spend time in her room listening to music rather than playing with friends. On top of that, in most of the photos that were taken of her at the time, she simply doesn't look very happy. I was very deep as a kid, she says. I had a lot of questions about life was exposed to death very early. I wasn't really a kid that was interested in being materialistic or a celebrity. I was very sort of spiritual at a young age, wanting to know deep, dark questions about life very early on. Even more tragic was she was only nine years old when her father died. For the next several years, both she and Priscilla would struggle through the pain. Lisa Marie becoming both introverted and rebellious at the same time. On the financial front, things were pretty rough as well. It seems that when Elvis died, his will called for his entire estate to go to Lisa Marie when she turned 25. In the meantime, Elvis's father, Vernon Presley, would manage the estate. But after he passed away in 1979, Priscilla, as Lisa's legal guardian, began co-managing the trust with the National Bank of Commerce in Memphis. What they discovered is that the estate was in dire straits, and it would be bankrupt in a number of years. It seems that Colonel Parker, who was still handling Elvis's business affairs, was making deals that benefited him far more than it did the estate. This resulted in a legal struggle that was settled out of court, involving a payment of $2 million to the colonel as well as a termination of his involvement in Elvis's concerns. Fortunately, Lisa Marie's financial future was saved by her mother, who turned out to be very astute in business and saved Elvis's fortune by turning Graceland into a tourist attraction. Priscilla turned the pending bankruptcy into a $100 million success story by the time Lisa Marie received her inheritance. However, Financially, she may have had a happy ending, but her personal life has been much more troubled. Following the death of her father, Lisa Marie began experimenting with drugs and alcohol at the age of 14 and dropped out of junior high school. She continued taking drugs for the next three years, 
when her mom, a practicing member of Scientology, sent Lisa Marie to the organization's Celebrity Center Rehab Facility, as well as the Apple School. In the early years of her time with Scientology, Lisa Marie met musician Danny Q, and they fell in love. The couple married on October 3, 1988. The following year, she gave birth in 1989 to their daughter, Danielle Riley, a Gemini, and in 1992, their son Benjamin Storm, a Libra. However, the marriage would be short-lived, and the couple split six years later. Like many celebrities, Lisa Marie's love life was complicated, and her choices in love even included her dating and marrying Michael Jackson. In an interview, she would later claim that her marriage to the King of Pop was real, even though many thought it was a publicity stunt. The two star-crossed lovers found comfort in each other's arms, but eventually split after being married only two years. In 1999, she was briefly engaged to rocker John Osaka, but that was broken off after she met actor Nicolas Cage at a party. The two of them got married on August 10, 2002. Just three months later, Cage filed for divorce, which became finalized in 2004. Lisa explained, We had similar backgrounds, similar histories, in terms of our families, being what they were, and an immediate connection. We were kindred spirits, rebellious and just different from other people. I think we just connected on that front. We were together two years before we got married. So it was one of those things when we already had a certain pattern going. It was a bit wild and stormy. So the hope was marriage would make that more stable, make each other feel more secure, and it didn't. When you get married based on something like that, it's either going to embellish the problem or it's going to handle it. In this case, it amplified it. Lisa Marie would marry for a fourth time on January 22, 2006, to Michael Lockwood, her guitarist, music producer, and director. Two years later, she would give birth to fraternal twin girls in 2008, Harper Vivian Ann and Finley Aaron Love. However, sadly, Lisa Marie has followed in her father's famous footsteps and has weathered her own battle with addiction. In 2015, her husband claimed Lisa Marie's drug use was getting out of control. Lisa Marie would check herself into rehab and leave her mother Priscilla in charge of her twins. On June 13, 2016, Lisa Marie would file for divorce from Michael Lockwood after 10 years of marriage. Currently, she is now sober and has left Scientology. For Priscilla Presley, who has never remarried, the memory of her ex-husband Elvis and the father of her child lives on. She recently said in an interview that revisiting his old records can produce mixed emotions, but she's most comfortable when working on projects she knows he would like and she feels she's being guided by his spirit on a daily basis. She says, when I go to Graceland, I can walk in the door and see Elvis walking down the stairs. I can hear his laughter. I can hear the music playing in the music room. It's a very surreal feeling. But it's not scary. It's beautiful.
even after his death, Elvis Presley's star continues to shine bright. He was an icon of sex, stardom, and rock and roll. But beneath the Hollywood fame brooded a sensitive soul who would read the Bible every day and was deeply curious about life's mysteries. Six months before Elvis passed away, the singer would have a conversation with his spiritual advisor, Larry Geller, and would tell him, Larry, my life's on the line, and I know it. I've been hiding from the truth for too long. There are too many people around me that I've outgrown. Elvis told his dear friend he wanted to go on a one-year Hawaiian retreat and stop taking pills, read, meditate, and get healthy. The singer wanted a new life and to continue exploring his spiritual truth. A few days before Elvis died, Larry would stop by the bookstore, Bodhi Tree, to buy three books for the singer and would give them to him the day before he died. One of the books was The Scientific Search for the Face of Jesus by Frank Adams and it would be the last words Elvis would read before he passed away. In the end, Elvis believed that God wanted him to use his light to uplift people and that he did. He struck a chord in all of our hearts that continues to play to this day through his words and music. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, JC Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash deathbymisadventurepodcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.